Good afternoon, and welcome to Creating a Culture of Cybersecurity to Thwart Sophisticated Phishing Campaigns, a Health System CIO Media Inc. production sponsored by Proofpoint. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Health System CIO, and I'll be your moderator today. We're looking forward to your participation. You can send in your questions or comments at any time in the Q&A box, and we will take those later in the program. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time today, first we're going to go about 35 to 40 minutes with our main panel discussion featuring Chris Ackroyd, SVP and CIO at Children's Health, Dennis Lieber, Interim CISO at UConn Health, and Ryan Witt, Managing Director for Healthcare with Proofpoint, and then we will have our Q&A. So let's jump right in. Um, Chris, let's start with you. Can you give us an overview of your organization and your role? Absolutely. Yeah, good afternoon or good morning. Um, so Chris Aykroyd, uh, Senior Vice President, Chief Information Officer for Children's Health in Dallas. Um, so we are a, a two-hospital pediatric system in the, uh, the Dallas uh, Metroplex, um, about the eighth largest pediatric facility in the nation. Uh, so we are a tertiary quaternary facility uh, focused on uh, with, with over about 55 specialties and subspecialties um, around pediatrics. Uh, we are a teaching hospital um, uh, and have an academic relationship with uh, University of Texas uh, UTSW, uh, UT Southwestern. Very good, Chris. Thank you. Dennis? Yeah, good afternoon, everyone. Dennis Lieber with UConn Health. Uh, our hospital is uh, about a 300-bed hospital. General Hospital uh, with several clinics uh, and services. So, you know, what, what you would think of a normal hospital and visiting, uh, that's what you get with UConn Health. I do get to tell us a little bit. Uh, last week, uh, U.S. Newsweek named uh, UConn Health Jackson Hospital the best hospital in the world. Pretty good. Pretty good praise. Yeah. Uh, Ryan. Hey, great to be here. Uh, Ryan Witt, uh, in addition to be the managing director for healthcare at Proofpoint. Uh, I am also what we call the resident CISO for healthcare Proofpoint, and I run the company's uh, healthcare customer advisory board. So very tunnel vision focused on healthcare. Uh, Proofpoint essentially um, defends data and protects people. Uh, we're a large cybersecurity organization, uh, very much focused on uh, trying to thwart the type of attacks we're going to talk about here today. Excellent. Very good. All right, Dennis, we're going to start with you. What types of phishing attacks are you seeing? Are they more frequent? Are they more sophisticated than in the past? And then they are they targeted to certain individuals or constituencies? Yeah, you know, the, the biggest thing that I'm seeing, um, as far as the sophistication, I don't think it's changed much. Uh, and I contribute that to the psychological profile that these attackers use. Uh, you know, it's been proven in the research that the, the common things you see as misspellings and, and bad grammar is purposely done because the folks that tend to fall for those fall within a category that don't notice that. Um, some of them are complex, though. I mean, there's some really good ones you've seen, I've seen throughout the, the years and the last few months. But the main thing with me is um, they all usually result in a credential harvesting uh, result. So not so much for the click on the link and let's down route, uh, you know, download something, which still happens, 
the majority of what I see is credential harvesting because our hackers have learned now it's much easier to log in than it is to hack in. And how are they doing that, Dennis? What, what's the technique to, to get a hold of the credentials? Uh, usually, you know, it's the preempt of you've got to accept the payment, you've got to update your HR, you know, something alluring to the humans that they're contacting to get them to click on it and then enter something, you know, like your, your email's about to expire. You're going to lose your, uh, your documents if you don't update. So something that convinces um, and completes the shell game shuffle of put your username and password in. And surprisingly, you know, folks do it. Um, we don't see an overabundance, but it, it, it's purposeful. So it, 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 it does trick people. Uh, and they put their username and password in, um, and it's it's a good uh, item to promote the uh, a multi-factor authentication because we've had some folks put their username and password in, but then they get that prompt and they realize, oh wait a minute, that's not me. Um, but it, it it's it's complex, and, and I say it's varied. I don't think there's one individual um, technique other than you know something that that sense of urgency or you're going to lose something to if you don't put your username and password in right right so a sense of urgency and ultimately the goal you're seeing is to get the username and password um chris what are your thoughts yeah seeing a lot of the same things I, I would say sophistication it probably covers the range um you you have your traditional stuff uh, that you've seen for years and I am seeing some smarter, more intelligent attempts um, at this. Of uh, we've seen some some good impersonations of third party vendors, um, whether they have compromised a third party account or not. But um, so we're, I'm, I've, I've seen some examples where they've come across as somebody we do business with, uh, using a name of somebody we do business with, with the links of you know your past due on this invoice or. Um, you know, something, something important, click here, uh, type of thing. And, uh, you know, so that I would say that we're seeing a, seeing a lot more of that. And we, we do take the opportunity to take some of the really good ones, um, clean them up and, and reuse them back in our fishing tests. Um, and so they, as they continue to get better and more believable, uh, we, we push that back out to our users, uh, to continue to test them against, um, you know, everything, all of our training and awareness that we do. That's very interesting uh, to do that. Uh, question, you mentioned that some um, have the appearance of coming from some of your third parties and some are very good. Um, are there certain cases where you will send those to the third parties and say, hey, just a heads up, look at this. It's It looks really like it's coming from you. I don't know if there's anything they can do, but you at least want to make them aware? We do. Uh, we do. We do make them aware and for us, it opens an investigation when there is that close of a tie to a business relationship. Because um, from us, we need to know, are you compromised or right. is somebody just impersonating? Um, and that, you know, for us, it kind of goes back into um, how we have our system set up of uh, the DMARC and, you know, the policy frameworks around how we receive email. And, you know, how did that come in um, without, you know, throwing off alarms Um a validation of, of the vendor or the, the mail mail servers. Do you ever have to, is it ever so good that you have to send it to them and say, is this you? Is this legit? Like we can't even tell. It seems suspicious, but you have to tell us if this is someone who works for you or if this is you. Uh, yes. Yes. We've done that a few times. And um, 
In one case, it actually ended up being that the third party's uh, email accounts were compromised. Um, so you so you ultimately were the one that let them know through the, through sending them that. Wow. Yeah, Very it actually it, it is actually a great win of a story is um, the user caught it. Um, so it wasn't necessarily caught by our systems. Um, the user didn't it didn't seem right, didn't feel right. So that's that's really a lot of our education is you know raise your hand and they did. And sure enough, a little bit of investigation and con- you know conversation with our accounting and finance department, we all came to the determination that wasn't right. And so it was a phone call over, and um, obviously you don't want to email back the compromised account, but um, yeah, it was a phone call over to to get to the bottom of it, and it was an issue. Very good, Ryan. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, building on what's been said, I mean, I would say um, absolutely credentials is the Nirvana state. Uh, everyone's looking for credentials. Once you get access into the network, you can do lots of nefarious activities, right? So access is king, and they get access to getting the credentials. Uh, we see sophistication really focused more around targeting those organizations, or sorry, those individuals within an organization who have a higher propensity to click, not necessarily because they're doing anything wrong, but more by the nature of their job. So I think you talk about supply chain here. That's a good example. Uh, those who are dealing with your your business associates or your suppliers have to download documents. They have to download files. They have to you know, verify um, purchase orders and invoices. They have to click on links. And so just by the nature of their work, um, they're, they, they, they're, they act in a vulnerable way. They, have, they are more vulnerable. Uh, I, I think where the sophistication comes into play here is the bad actors have tried more and more to learn what those people and those job functions do, what would be a right, you know, would be an appropriate request to send to them, how to use language that would be aligned to those job functions, requests that are aligned to those job functions. Um, and I think then you see you see more and more. Uh, kind of as as, um, as Chris kind of alluded to, it's it's harder and harder to ascertain or determine is this a legitimate uh, email request or or something that 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 is suspicious. And so, yes, going back to your your third party, your supplier, your business associate is a great sort of uh, remedy. But I, I, yeah, so I think sophistication we see a lot in this sort of area here today. All right. Very good. Um, next question, Chris, we're going to start with you. How should CIOs and CISOs fight against phishing attack? And there's kind of uh, two general buckets, I think, uh, technologies and tools, uh, and then user education. Um, so your thoughts around that? You know, for us, um, this is a team sport. Uh, you know, we look at the risk in our organization, and it's it's not an ISO-owned or a cybersecurity-owned risk by itself. And um, the, the biggest threat issue is, is our user. Um, so that's where it all begins, right, is our user awareness and training. We do um, a substantial amount of it and, and try to keep it fresh uh, for people as we push out documents, communications, training materials on a very, very regular basis. Um, we've got a program that goes through, I think probably like most people with, uh, with programmatic phishing tests. Uh, and we do continue to uh, increase the the complexity of them, um, and we we do a lot of education. Right? We've in some cases it's we do so much 
awareness training and it's not a problem. It's just we've created a culture in the organization that people are afraid to click on things, even when they're legitimate. Um, so not a bad thing. And what, you know, we, we, what we see are the numbers have been very good. Um, it's not zero, which is the problem, right? It's um, this is one of those situations where security has our security has to be perfect all the time. And the attacker needs just one time um, to not be perfect. And our phishing rates, though, with with the awareness program, it's we've hit a good stride. We're, we're down um, below two and a half percent click rate. Um, again, not zero, but I like the numbers in, in the two percent range. Um, I want to keep driving it down. We even took it further. Um, I think we had the conversation a second ago on uh, multi-factor authentication of sure your your identities are stolen, but MFA backs it up. We now do uh, MFA tests, um, you know, kind of like a phishing test against multi-factor of will you click the button to allow the person in, um, and so that's. That's just one step further of, I got your credential, now I'm going to go ahead and try to log on as you, will you accept me in? Uh, so those have been those have been good, good awareness um, program source as well. Very good, Dennis. Yeah, there's, there, there's not a lot to add to that. I mean, that's what we're doing in the industry. I, I, I can speak to some of the things I've done in the past for success. Uh, the educational part is probably the paramount part. We have to build the program around the human. That's the target, right? And these are human users that, at the end result. Um, a technique that I've used in the past, we created a website and called it the fishbowl. So really good phishing attacks that were uh, successful, we published them on an intranet site where folks could go check. So you don't necessarily always have to call the service desk or security. You can go to the fishbowl page and go, Oh, yeah, here it is. Here's the email I just got. Uh, it's right here. Uh, and even on the opposite of that, because to Chris's point, you do create a culture of that fear of clicking. Um, so you would put, we put in, hey, we got a lot of reports that this email was. Sorry, somebody rang my doorbell. It's okay. So, <laughs> no worries. Everybody knows that. Yeah. Um, the. We put a good email there. So a lot of reports came in. Our inquiries came in about this email, which was actually a good email. We would add that there, too. So folks could go, oh, this was, this was a good email. So then it also provides that example and reference point. Uh, the other key element for me is uh, I call it SPAR training. So we always call it security awareness training. I like to call it SPAR training, security preparedness. And most of us cover that part. So we do that awareness or the preparedness comes in. Here's what they look like. Here's what you should be looking for. And then I like to add that our part is the response training. What do I want you to do? So uh, Chris had a great example. We've all had that where a vendor got hacked and you get this phishing email, but it's from one of your legitimate vendors. Well, that's where we talk to our, we add that education and talk to our users about, here's what you do if you're suspicious. Call the person. Call them from an outside source. You know, don't email them back, obviously, to compromise. <laughs> but how do you respond to these things? And I think that helps a lot. And then, uh, of course, you know, Proofpoint's on here, and we're a Proofpoint customer. You know, we, we rely on our Proofpoint data. The data that comes out of those dashboards is, is tremendous. You know, who's your targeted folks? And we try to target some training. It's a little more difficult to do in organizations. It takes time. But, you know, hey, we've noticed from the last three phishing uh, campaigns, you failed them all. What's going on? <laughs> right? How do we help you get better? Right? Because it is situational. They cannot give a crap or they really need some help in identifying our workflows. And then the my advocate, advocate always is uh, stop using email. 
you know, well, ideally we can never get rid of it, but stop using it. If, if you're a Microsoft Teams office, use Teams, right? Chat as much as you can in the more uh, innovative, collaborative ways we have. So don't rely so heavily on email. So then you you start getting away from some of that. Uh, and then the, the last part is, is what's the standardization, uh, especially like for the insider threats in, in the compromised accounts internally. You know, do you have standard signature lines? Do you have language that's not allowed or must be included in all your email correspondence? So what are some of those, some, what are some of your policies that dictate the formatting and the sending and receiving and the normalcy of your emails that would be another red flag that you could add to this may be a nefarious attack? So that's sort of language that you would expect to be in any emails you receive. And if it's not there, it's an indication that this is, this is not from who it's supposed to be from. That or the other way, uh, it's a great example, and I forget who the organization is. Uh, during their inclusivity uh, program, they realized that they were using language and email, and they had certain terms. And I'm making it up here, so don't quote it, but like at the end of your email salutation, you couldn't use the word thank you. But you start getting emails where the sender is using the word thank you, and you know that across the organization, that word is not allowed, hmm. which could be an indicator that, hey, it's, right. it's not a good email. Yeah. Interesting. Ryan, what are your thoughts? I mean, I'm, you know, building a little bit on what Dennis said, I, I, I would say that not every email address or not every employee is created equally in the bad actor's eyes. And so there are definitely people within your organization that are highly more desirable to target. And so the tools I would use is trying to figure out where the attackers are, are attacking so you know where to play defense. Um, so and there is threat insight around this, and there are some attributes about how people work. We talked about a little bit earlier. If they work in a vulnerable way, then then they're more likely to be attacked. Uh, if they proceed to have access to credentials, so they're a system administrator, or, um, they're in your IT or infosec team, they're probably more likely to be attacked. If you're your classic VIP and they they got a high profile persona in the in the in the, in the public marketplace, then they're going to be attacked. Um, if you're working with a high value IP, I don't know, maybe you have a research component to your organization, they're going to be attacked. So threat insight can can tell you that. And I would be layering in your your defenses accordingly about where um where the attackers are most active. I mean, there's a lot of sporting analogies here, right? But you know, if you're yeah, we're we're you know, we're I guess we're in March Madness. So let's let's use a back basketball analogy. If you got a team who's really heavily reliant on the three-point shot, well, you're going to probably guard the perimeter a little bit more, right? So that's I think that uh, that sort of um, application uh, applies here as well. I'll second that. I think that's that's a great point, Ryan, and um, something we're we're trying to get better at. We we've had we have that was a very attacked person list, and so it's you know, what does that tell you? And that's exactly what it is. Is we're having conversations of how do we adjust our awareness program to those individuals and make them aware that they are targeted and here's some additional training and here's some partnership that we need to have with you. And um, so, yeah, I would love, love more input on that from how we would, how we should round that out. Great. Thank you. Um, you Chris, you mentioned about getting those, uh, that p- some people are almost afraid to click on links it, are we worried about overdoing it and and impeding business in that sense, or or do we say, hey, 
that's not something I'm going to worry about. I'm just going to get those numbers down as far as we can get them down. I'm not going to worry about that. What's the best way to think about it? That's a, it's a great, great question. Um, you know, email is a tool that ha- it's not going away. Um, we don't want to cripple business at all. It's there's a couple things we do to approach this. Um, we've we have banners like just probably like everybody else on inbound email saying warning inbound external email. Um, you know, typically what happens is your marketing your HR department says, hey, we're going to be sending a survey from this third party. Because um, you know a lot of our education is don't click on you know be very careful about clicking on things and links with an orange banner. So HR is like buy, I want to bypass that. Well, we've been pretty inflexible in that, but we have adjusted to the point that if it's a trusted vendor or an expected survey, we do change the banner saying this is an expected survey and the banner color is different, but it does say it's links in this are okay to click. Um, and so we've we've done some of that. Uh, additionally, knowing that, I mean, I mentioned a second ago our, our phishing rates, the failure rates. Um, people are still clicking. Uh, it's not zero. So we we've moved to a lot. We've moved to isolation on links that are opened. Everything has a URL rewrite, and everything goes into an isolation. So when they click on a link, it launches on. Um, a third-party servers that are off of ours, and that way it gets it gets scanned. And if something is there uh, or malicious or redirects the URL, uh, it should be caught. Uh, and so that when we rolled that out, not not the most popular thing, but through some education of here's why uh, we were able to get there and able to keep it. Um, so we've we try to hold that line real real close on what did what does get put on the allowed list, which bypasses um, uh, URL, URL isolation, but um, uh, very few things do and, and no, no people in the organization. Everybody's created equal in our organization, you know, CEO down, you know, our CEO didn't want to do it, but he's one of the very attacked people, right? So we're definitely not taking controls or uh, defenses off of, of very attacked people or situations like that. So it's, it's a balance. I'd say that we're through the awareness, people understand the risk and we're trying to mitigate risk. And I know it's a little bit inconvenient to have to click an exit button once URL isolation opens, but it is, it protects us. Dennis, is, think, is, no, go ahead, Ryan. Go ahead. Yeah, you know, I, I think it was um, Verizon and their DBR report, um, which comes out every year. It just came out in the fall. I, I think they that report said, and then kind of like their opening sort of preamble, they said, I, I went back 10 years ago, looked at my look at the report, and essentially I could cut and paste the report from 10 years ago today. The point being is like all the things that we're worried about in 2012, we're worried about now, phishing, credential harvesting. Um, so I, I don't know about overdoing it because I think there's still a lot of activity in that particular area. And in fact, I'm it's my hypothesis and maybe not a unique hypothesis that we haven't really seen the rise in uh, attacks on um, Internet of Things, Internet of Medical Things, because there's so much fruitful activity, unfortunately, mm-hmm. around just doing these old school style attacks. And it's a lot easier to to fish somebody than it is to try to penetrate a medical device. And so I think until we really lock down this sort of threat vector, um, we're not going to see activity elsewhere. And so therefore, I don't I don't know it's, if it's possible at this stage to overdo it. Okay, fair enough. All right. Um, next question. Um, 
But Dennis, let's go with you. If certain roles are targeted more than others, a blanket approach to protecting all users doesn't make sense. Talk about targeting tools, education, and resources to the most at-risk roles. How can this be done most effectively? Yeah, I think it's a there's, a, there's foundational items in place, and folks are starting to talk about this, but it's just like access. It's got to be role-based. Um, the education that you would give to, say, your, your team that takes care of the grounds who may not check their email ever, as opposed to, you know, Chris and Ryan's example of the CEO who, if you're, you know, we'll refer back to Proofpoint, there's a very targeted uh, person's dashboard, right? Uh, what do you, and what are we seeing for them? So I think the big thing with too is we have to remember a missing element of cybersecurity across all um, practices of protection is the human factors elements in engineering. So what are we doing to remove those mistakes that we call them that facilitate success in hackers? And where are we adding in those stop gaps and controls or, you know, oversimple flat the seat belts, like in our cars, that, hey, yeah, you might you might start going down the wrong path, but we got you, right? Seat belt locked up. You're safe again. Um, I, th- I think those are the big parts in, in the missing. It's, so it, it's, it's a combination of the technical and administrative controls and like that role-based training being one of the administrative controls. Um, but how, how can we automate that through the technology? It's like, where's the seat belts? And I think that's a big missing part that the industry, we still need to figure out. I, I think we're in the right direction. I think a lot of the data is there to facilitate how do you do that and make the decisions. Uh, I, I always advocate the big missing part is the human factors engineering. You know, wh- where are we doing that? You, a lot of people in healthcare use the Swiss cheese model, right? All the holes lined up. We had a problem. Where do we offset the holes? So at some point it's stopped and remediated. Chris, I'd like your thoughts. I think Dennis did a great job around it. And I, you know, I agree. We talked about this a little bit already, but it's um, if we know somebody's being targeted, um, we feel it's our responsibility to make them one aware of it. And then to what action do we need them to, to uh, do differently or be, be aware of. So, um, and for us on the, on the IS and cybersecurity side is we, we should increase our diligence on, on watching what's going that way. Um, and being being a little bit more proactive um, if we see something that's not quite right. Um, so that's that's largely the direction we're moving on how we how we use those very attack lists. And um, but I think it does start again. For me, a lot of it's based in user awareness and training. So Chris, it's kind of interesting. Um, you mentioned the isolation um, when somebody clicks on a link, it goes can go into isolation, and then not everybody loves that. Uh, might take an extra second and an extra click. Um, you combine that th- with the fact that we're talking about protecting very attacked people. Sometimes those very attacked people are very high-level people. Sometimes very high-level people don't like having to do extra clicks and be inconvenienced. It creates an interesting dynamic for the CISO who may be speaking to their boss and saying, no, I need you to keep doing this thing that you don't really love. So tell me about how you, how you handle that as a CISO. Well, it, it's you're right. I mean, those are those are the tough conversations, but those are the same people that are pushing um, for no, you know, to to have zero risk and to you know remain completely safe. And so that is it's a conversation. And 
uh, it's rooted for us in a lot of, we include our, our sea levels in cyber tabletops, walking through the anatomy of a, of a successful attack. And, and we've talked about it here. It starts with usually a stolen credential um, and comes in this way and, and grows. And when they start to realize business implications of, of how something so small of clicking on a link results in you know, a complete ransomware downtime, it opens the conversation up differently now of, of how do we manage this risk? And this is why this is important. And even our, at the board level where we report this stuff out, the board's very interested in it. And fortunately um, with all the media around the, the continued issues um, throughout every industry and, and most specifically healthcare, Awareness is also being generated outside of, of even our own conversation. So it's a lot easier to have these conversations now than it used to be. And uh, you know, I've even had board members um, externally the organization push and really question, should we allow employees to put titles and such on LinkedIn? Um, that you know, now that could potentially make them a target. And so it's it was an interesting conversation. We we have not gone that far, but some other organizations do, where they they don't allow you to really have much of an identity, or say you know I'm the I'm the CIO or the CISO or I'm a system admin, uh, just because that that could lend threat that way. It was it was an interesting conversation, but um, you know, in in all to answer your question, it's it's just direct business impact um, conversation we have with the CEO or others as they're frustrated of. Um, it's this, or you know, we we have a ransomware attack. What's your choice? Yeah, Ryan, you and I have spoken a number of times, and and you're a big proponent of of couching these conversations in a patient safety language when you're trying to convince people uh, about needing to accept certain cybersecurity techniques and tools that may take them an extra second. That you couch it in patient safety, and that's how you're going to be most effective. Is is that true? It's an anecdotal observation. Um, I've been doing this role for a long time. I engage uh, a lot with um, healthcare CISOs and CIOs, and 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 Proofpoint is very widely adopted uh, within the industry. It, it feels like to me those CISOs or IT executives who can communicate the risk in terms of a link to uh, the health system's mission. Uh, which are often oriented around patient safety, patient care, seem to be the most impactful in getting the attention of the hospital board um, in terms of being able to make the necessary changes, whether it's investment investments in technology or improving processes or you know changing workflows, whatever whatever the remedy is. It feels like those who who are able to communicate that in terms of back to the mission are the most uh, successful at affecting, you know, real change. It's it's an anecdotal observation to be sure, but definitely feels like that's the language that the board resonates more with and understands more. And it's not like compliance is not an issue, not a driver. It's not like reputational harm is not a driver. And it's not like, you know, financial loss is not a driver. Those, those are all important too. But when you link it back to the mission, then I think it you get people's attention. Dennis, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I mean, I, I can't say anything more than Ryan did. I, I advocate that. If you've ever ever heard me talk anywhere else, especially you know in the general cybersecurity, I advocate that 
we can talk about risk and vulnerability, but you have to tie it back to the organizational goals, missions, and stated outcomes. Uh, you start there. So I, I could only mirror and reflect what Ryan was saying. Instead of going, hey, phishing attack calls ransomware, you know, hey, phishing attacks can lead to this, which would impact the babies in the NICU, mm-hmm. right? Or the older age. So, yeah, I completely support Ryan's analogy of that. Yeah, you have to finish the, the, the connections, right? Phishing attack, ransomware, systems down, patient safety problems. You can't stop at ransomware because people say, well, I'm not paying the ransom, so what am I worried about? Maybe I get a few days off. So, no, you have to you have to finish that point. Um, all right, this is uh, an interesting question. Um, I think it's going to involve HR, might even involve marketing, but... Who, what, what are the key roles that CIOs and CISOs should be working with on these internal education and anti-phishing campaigns? Um, Dennis, let me start with you. Yeah, I, I believe in it takes you know a nation to raise a healthcare cybersecurity <laughs> program. Um, so we do rely on our regulatory compliance and control. So you're going to talk about your compliance office, your privacy officer. So, you know, you should be holding hands and skipping down the road together on these. Uh, Utilizing your HR and your marketing. So are you tying this into annual evaluations? Uh, You know, how does your HR support this? How do you measure that? Your marketing, you know, people listening to marketing more than this type of security. So how does your marketing office actually helping you get this message out as opposed to the annual cybersecurity awareness or SPAR training, like I like to call it, or the, you know, the, even the compliance training, how do you market this, um, if you have a psychology department, you know, how are people learning? So how do we use, going back to that human factors engineering, how, how do we reach folks and, and make this stick? Uh, what are some innovative, creative ways that we're doing this? Uh, and then, you know, the other part that comes to mind is, um, you know, it, a lot of folks like to gamify, you know, what, what mechanism is your organization used to? You know, what, how do you, implement this into how they're normally working. So it ain't new. It's like, here's our regular channel of communication. So we may want to send emails, but everyone uses Slack. So how do we ingest ourselves into the normal flow that people are used to communicating and working as opposed to adding something to them? And I think you have a lot of success when you can start looking at that and then using just behavioral data analytics to, to, you know, some business intelligence to make decisions around those things. Very good, Chris. Yeah, Dennis kind of covered covered all the key roles. Uh, you know, for us, it's very much the same. Of we are we are in lockstep with privacy uh, and compliance, but um, uh, there's a obvious a, a very close tie to privacy as it comes to security. Uh, the marketing is important for us. It's they help us package things in a way that um, our users are used to consuming it. Um, Look, feel, same same channels. There's multiple channels that our awareness training gets sent through. Um, you know, HR is an interesting one. Um, it, it always the conversation always bounces back of when somebody you know you're doing a phishing test, for example, and somebody doesn't pass the test. What do you do? And how many times are they allowed to fail a test before some type of HR actions taken? Uh, it, and I think as an organization over the years, we've kind of gone all over the place with that one. So HR would be a, a kind of an interesting conversation to have. And we have a learning institute here as well that if you fail a test, you're immediately signed up as part of your, your learning record. 
and transcript uh, for um, edu additional education. Um, when it does get to certain levels of failure, we do start notifying leaders. And we don't have right now, as far as teeth might be on too much, there's not there's not a termination policy in place. Um, over years, people have advocated for it, but haven't gotten it. Um, and I don't know if we should go that far or not, but it, it does start to, the leadership has started to get, has to start getting involved. So that's really where the HR piece comes in for us is help us train, help us reinforce, because uh, this is critical. Ryan, what, uh, anything in terms of what you've seen at Successful Health Systems um, in terms of who these, the CIOs and CISOs are interacting with? You know, I was going to answer the question a little bit of a different way, actually. Sure. Uh, actually. I, I think, I, I mean, I would totally agree with everything that's just been said. But I think for those on the phone, think about how you your organization presents itself to the marketplace, right? What is your public persona? What do you focus on? And I say that because we were working with um, an academic healthcare um, organization who was known or had a significant amount of focus on research. And they had actually had six different research units. Um, and they were all very overt about this. Like they were very proud about that, what they were doing, but right, rightfully so. But of those six, there's actually was one unit that they were particularly known for. They had kind of worldwide sort of notoriety for this one particular unit. Well, no surprise, uh, the threat actors figured that out as well. So the all those six research units getting the lion's share, I think two-thirds of all target attacks were going to that part of, of their organization. That's a very large organization. And then actually two-thirds of those two-thirds, if I'm at, if I'm saying that correctly, were going to this one research unit that had the most sort of notoriety. So, um, you know, that's how they presented to the marketplace. That's what the threat actors picked up on, and that's what they were attacking. So if you have that sort of, uh, if that's reflective of how maybe your organization presents itself to the web, or to, you know, to the World Wide Web and to the, to the outside world, then maybe those are the roles that uh, the people who work in those particular roles are the ones that should be working with a little bit more on these anti-phishing campaigns. All right, very good. Well, Chris has teed up my poll question, Chris even inadvertently. So we're going to launch this poll. Title it, Enough is Enough. And here's the question, agree or disagree. We're just going to have a little fun here. Employees who fail three phishing tests after having received education upon hiring in the first two, and maybe there's been some discipline and whatnot, should be terminated. Okay? Agree or disagree? I'd like to see what people think. Our panelists can vote too. So please vote, and we will get back to that in a minute. All right. Um, let's see. Let's go to one of our audience questions. Uh, lately, we have seen it uh, in terms of uh, phishing. Um, fake HR email stating there was a problem with the paycheck. Click on this link to verify your information. And then they ghost the client's website with the login screen. And they gather the employee's username and password. Have you seen this, Dennis? Have you seen this particular attempt? Yeah. Okay, Chris, have you seen it? I have, yes. Ryan, I'm sure you've seen it. They've yeah, seen it. Absolutely. All right, so that's a popular one. Um, next question. How do you see artificial intelligence in the hands of the attacker attacker affecting safeguards in the future? Ryan, I'm going to start with you. 
Uh, I think it's an area of significant concern. Uh, I've, I've personally played around with a lot of those tools and your first experience with them is kind of jaw dropping. Um, the more you use them, the less impressive they look because um, they only can go so far at this stage. It's kind of like remind, reminds me of, you know, the first stage of the internet, you know, the first time you used Netscape or AOL or Mosaic, or whatever they were called back then, they were kind of really, really cool. And you realized they were quite limited. But I suspect we'll have the similar but rapid trajectory of of them becoming much more powerful uh, very, very quickly. So I don't think it's that long from now when those those tools will significantly uh, be problematic for, for those on the call who are trying to to protect uh, health systems. And, you know, back to Chris's point, you got to be right every single time. And I think these tools are going to make it harder and harder uh, for it to be right every single time. And I think back to the poll question, it's like, these attacks could get very sophisticated really, really quickly. And so it'd be pretty easy to fall foul and fail these sort of attacks if 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 these things wrap, ramp up in the way that is quite likely. Dennis, thoughts on AI? Yeah, I think it's just like quantum computing. Uh, it's coming to Ryan's point. What are we doing now to get ready for it? Um, on the other side of that, though, I think we also got to learn how do we use it to protect. So not just worry about how they're going to attack us with it. Well, how are we as the defenders going to utilize it as well? So I think that it's a two, two front attack on getting ready for it. Chris. This is a, this is a scary one. You know, I, I, what I've seen over the years is attackers are starting to become more organized and, um, and, and collectively working together. Um, so you're starting to see thing, a lot of things as, as services now, malware as a service, phishing as a service, and so on. And so we start looking at the collective attack uh, from, from groups, and now you start introducing this AI through machine learning and other things. An article I read the other day lists out a bunch of things that um, this is going to bring. So it's not going to be just written, you know, where it, where it could craft maybe a better email, but they're, they're um, predicting uh, various image generation, audio generation, and video generation. So we're seeing that capability of deep fakes or being able to create images and do things like that. So it's it's very interesting where it's going. And obviously, these are all technologies we're looking at internally to promote for our business use. And why wouldn't they collectively come at us with the same things that that we're trying to improve our business with? Um, so it's become quite an industry of interconnected um, kind of marketplaces in the uh, the in that industry. All right. I'm going to read, uh, uh, it's really a statement from, uh, one of our, one of our attendees and then reveal the poll results. This is all quite interesting. So the sort of question slash statement is what does your organization do with people who are unable to prove competency in either clinical or administrative functions? And why wouldn't the same standard apply if someone's unable to approve competent, prove competency with HIT devices and programs which are required for them to do their work, clinical or administrative. So saying, if you can't get the cybersecurity right, I think, why are you held to a different standard than somebody who can't do their jobs right? Which takes us to sharing the poll results, which completely surprised me. Um, asking this question, I would have thought, especially with this audience, the majority would agree. Uh, but that is not the case. Two-thirds think the person sh and this is chris is going to shake his head he's got a headache now reading these results and dennis and ryan they say i can't believe it they disagree what are we going to do ryan 
what are we going to do with, with results like these? What does this mean? Honestly, I click disagree as well. Oh, <laughs> oh, but you're softies. That's what well, you are. You're I don't know. I, I, I think when I see so, when I see the, the, the level of attacks that are coming, <laughs> I think it's hard. I think it's really, really hard to discern between fake and three not times. Fake. What, three times? Three times. Yeah, that becomes questionable. I guess maybe I'm maybe I am getting sympathetic in my older age. I don't know. I love it. I love it. (laughs) Uh, Chris, uh, well, no, let's go to Dennis. He got his hand up. Dennis, what what does this mean to you? I disagree too. Oh my god! (laughs) Um, I'm a mean person. I'm just a mean person, I guess. And 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 I'll uh, tell you why, and and it's why I wanted to jump in because fishing attacks—you never get the same one. So. It's like a shell game. It's like three card at Monty, right? You are being tricked. What we're forgetting in a lot of these situations are these people are victims, not incompetent. So we can give all the education in the world, but we can't cover every scenario of what these fishing attacks look like. So I think there's a lot to it. There's, there's, it's, it's a case-by-case basis. If you've got someone and they're like, I just feel victim. It, it tricked me. Here's what it is. As opposed to if you have a conversation with them, they go, I don't care. I think mm. it's like it's stupid. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's different to why we would fire them. Um, you know, you have to ask yourself internally, do we have the administrative and technical controls in place that help prevent this? So I don't think it's just an instant firing. And I mentioned earlier about HR, and that's the, the other part I wanted to get in. So Chris talked a lot about how you involve HR and fire them. I take it more of, are we putting it into measurable? Is 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 passing and, and being a part and contributing to cybersecurity a part of your job description? Most job descriptions don't have that in there. So it's the culture of cybersecurity that we're still fighting that cybersecurity for the longest time just now is starting to be recognized as a job function, a business area like the CFO, the CIO, the COO. It was always a bolt-on or a subsection of technology or the CIO. And it's starting to realize it's a key business function. It's not one of the most key business functions because it'll shut down the business if it's not proper. So are we including cybersecurity into your job descriptions? Do your annual reviews, do you have measurable uh, metrics? So as a manager, do you have a metric maybe that says, do you talk about cybersecurity risk and fishing with your employees, right? As a director, do you do this with your managers? As an employee, are you passing your training? So. Until we get all that in place, I don't think we should be hiring. You know, the, the, the knee-jerk reaction shouldn't be firing until we get the other parts in place. We have to look internally a little bit and self-assess. Then we can get to that place where now we've done everything possible and you just don't care or you are incompetent. Chris, i got to get your thoughts. Well, I also disagreed. Unbelievable. Uh, I know. I know you wouldn't like that. But, you know, if, if Ryan and Dennis – they nailed it. You know, Ryan says the, the the attacks are more sophisticated and they're they're really good. And, and Dennis really made a really good point of um, you know are they uh, capable of doing their job? And so it, the the comment that was written was um, you know around if they if they can't figure this out, why do we keep them really? And it's in my mind, it, you know, a, a physician may misdiagnose something um, and make a mistake, and we don't terminate them three times for misdiagnosis. Um, I, I get the stakes are a little bit higher and the risk is higher, but if you've got the technical controls in place from a cyber standpoint, we should be able to mitigate one person giving away credentials um, and being able to isolate that, hopefully. 
um, if not be able to identify it. So it's people do make mistakes. Um, it, I think it does become a problem. And I, I guess this is probably the, the answer HR would absolutely hate is it's maybe I'm more of a maybe is, you know, what is the competence level of that employee? Is, was it just so egregious that, OK, this is a problem um, or is, was it a is it a was it a realistic mistake? And I know there's a lot of gray area in that of making that determination, but I think it should factor into the overall competency of the employee. Are they technically competent in their role and the job description as written or, um, or are they just blindly clicking everything to be malicious? Um, so it, I guess maybe I, I needed a third option. Give me a maybe. Maybe. Well, listen, I, I think that was a great dialogue right there and changed my thinking um, on the approach. So obviously uh, a lot for CISOs and CIOs to think about out there. Uh, when they're working with HR and dealing with this much more gray area. Um, next audience question, how can you enforce clicking a phishing link if you encrypt the URL and the end user can't see the site that they are attempting to go to? Dennis, thoughts on that? I don't really have a good answer for that. because if, if, if it's that situation, it's going to be hard, but I guess I've never done that, nor I think would do that. So I don't know if I can give a really good answer to that. Okay. So you wouldn't be encrypting the URL as they stated in the question. De uh, Chris, what are your thoughts on that question? It's a good question. We, we rewrite the URL and then it, it gets further rewritten into our isolation. Um, so yeah, if you hover over the link, it, it's pretty cryptic. Um, so part of our education now is if, if something just doesn't feel right, we have a button in the email that you click to report phishing. The team is very quick at responding to it um, and they can write back and say, this is, this is valid. And I, I use it sometimes. There's sometimes I'm like, I don't even know what this is. I wasn't email. Are they tricking me? Am I, am I going to get set up and the CIO is going to fail a fish test? So I click the button and, uh, and wait for the team to respond, which can take, you know, sometimes 30 minutes, but they'll come back and say, this is legitimate or this was not. And if it wasn't, you know, we've got the capability to scan all mailboxes and pull back if it was, if it was, you know, a blast type of email and, and retrieve those out of mailboxes. So, um, but to answer the question, it, it's tough and it's just education of ask for help. Ryan. I, I think Chris nailed it. We, we rewrite the URLs and ideally as Chris said, put them in isolation. So you do kind of have maximum protection um, and you kind of get around that problem then. All right, uh, Ryan, do you have a question for one or both of your co-panelists? I guess the question that um, I'm curious about is where do you think the role of the CISO goes from here? Uh, and I'm, I wanted to ask because we have a CISO and we have a CIO on the phone uh, or on the call here. And and there is a lot of talk about CISO, the CISO role maybe becoming a direct board position, maybe moving out of the IT organization. Um, so how do you guys see that role and that, that evolving in, in the future? Chris, you want to go first? I, I have seen, um, exactly what you're talking about, Ryan. I'm starting to see some positions that we report directly to a president or to a board. Um, I think the, the risk is realized by, by leadership and, and, and by the boards as well. So I, I, I wouldn't say no. To, to that. I mean, I would, I could understand it, but it is for us, it's very, very technical and how we approach and how we mitigate. And, um, 
our security team is not large. I mean, I think we're we're just shy of 20 people, and that includes identity access management. So it's a team it's a team effort of everybody in infrastructure um, aligned and making sure that we're getting patches and vulnerabilities taken care of. And uh, so having that for me, I this answer the question of the CISO evolution. They are becoming a more and more critical um, um, strategic partner uh, in how we how we pull the entire IS organization and leadership of the organization outside of IS together to to a common understanding of risk. Dennis, I hope we have some time left. Um, <laughs> so I've long advocated throughout my career that the CISO is stifled being a part of the IT organization or under the CIO. Uh, what other C-suite executive reports to another C-suite besides the CEO, right? The C, you know, you, you, usually your C-suite people report to a CAO or a board. So that's a change that needs to happen. Um, but I'll say it's a depends. I'm going to go Chris with the voting. It's a maybe <laughs> or depends answer because there are, it's the competency of the CISO. You know, to truly be a CISO, you should be that strategic leader that can direct the security program while communicating that risk and bringing light and making sure that the voice and the message isn't filtered going to the folks who need to hear it. But we have to make sure that we do not lose the collaboration, the teamwork and partnership that you have with a CIO and the COO and the CFO. So even separating the CISO out where I believe it should be, you have to make sure the collaboration remains strong and the partnership remains strong. With that being said though, and, and Ryan and Chris, I can't remember which one you said, but your security teams are small. The same investment in the security program has to happen. You, you know, you, you look at security teams and like, I got 250 application developers. I got 300 people working the Epic. I got 500 people on the IT team and you got five security folks. Well, just labor alone, anyone who does productions or Kaiban or anything, those, those numbers don't match. If that's really that important to you and you've got one or two people in a very small budget, then it's not important to you. You're just saying those words. So you also want to have to have the understanding that the cybersecurity program and team has to truly be invested and built like a complete business function area, like all the other business function areas. And when the maybe comes in, you're still going to need those deputy CISOs or business information security officers or whatever label you want to give them that are the operational, right? That, a lot of times now, CISOs have to wear a hat where I'm the strategic leader over here today. Then I have to go be an operations manager for a part of the day. And I might even have to work as an analyst for a little bit. And you're going to have to build out that, that, that foundation and the architecture of the program to make it work while out compromising the other things I just talked about. Um, regarding continuing education, you can use the final slide in this deck. Uh, you'll receive an email when the on-demand recording is ready for viewing. If you want to sponsor an event with us, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team and go to our website to register for upcoming panels. With that, with that I want to thank our tremendous panel, Chris Aykroyd, Dennis Lieber and Ryan Witt, and I want to thank Proofpoint for sponsoring and making the event possible, and I want to thank you for attending. And with that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you. Enjoy it.